In 2018, the Wealth Standard Podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism. For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. The world is changing daily. New technology, new businesses, new toys, games, movies. Yet, there is a growing concern about the gap between the wealthy and the poor. Presidential candidate Andrew Yang proposes UBI, Universal Basic Income. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez proposes sweeping, centrally driven reform. But it begs the question, what is the root of the problem? And why would we give government even more power when their initiatives of the past have always fallen short of expectations? My guest today may be unfamiliar to most of you, but his resume is beyond impressive. He was featured in by far my favorite financial documentary, Inside Job, when he was chief economist at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, where he openly challenged Alan Greenspan, then the chairman of the Federal Reserve, at the iconic Jackson Hole Economic Summit. This was in 2005. The challenge was a controversial paper he wrote that cited the excessive risk-taking of certain investors with no corresponding consequence. He was scoffed at by almost everyone there, but was vindicated when the world financial system almost collapsed because of what he claimed. He was named as one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine and has written three best-selling books, Fault Lines, How Hidden Fractures Still Threaten the World Economy, Saving Capitalism from Capitalists, Unleashing the Power of Financial Markets to Create Wealth and Spread Opportunity, and his new book, The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. Dr. Raghuram Rajan is the former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. He's the former governor of the Reserve Bank of India. He's also the former vice chairman of the Bank for International Settlements. Currently, he is the Catherine Dusak Miller Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago. This season, we're talking about entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship the development of the individual and the difference they can make in their own life and the life of others. I felt that it is John's perspective of the role of community as part of the global landscape is compelling and it reinforces what individuals can achieve in a certain environment. The wealth gap and the rise of poverty is certainly an issue today. The typical narrative is that the society safety net, you know, i.e. welfare and money is a solution. That method is easy, but ultimately, it's really a band-aid, a short-term solution, if anything. The lasting change for all individuals requires a mindset change, and only the individual can do that. Not a handout, not a paycheck that they don't earn, but them themselves making 
that mindset change. I hope you enjoy this second episode of The Wealth Standard Season 2. If you really like it, don't forget to spread the word. Leave your review on iTunes and please share this episode on social media channels and get the word out, especially for Dr. Rajan and his new book. So share it on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. My book, the Amazon bestseller, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, a financial strategy to reignite the American dream is completely changing the way people look at saving, wealth, and retirement. Want a sneak peek? Head on over to www.headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast for a free audio and text download of my favorite chapter. Again, that's headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast. Such an honor to have Raghuram Rajan on the podcast with us today. And it's such an honor to meet you. I'm really excited to be discussing your new book, but also just discussing your perspective on you know, where we stand as an economy and a society. So thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. You have such an impressive list of accolades. And I was kind of compelled to ask you about just where did kind of drive to pursue the career path that you're on right now come from? What were maybe some of the defining events in your life that impacted the way that you currently see it? Well, I guess different people have different views on where you are. I mean, you know, to some extent, where I have really contributed has been in the area of both economic theorizing and research, as well as economic policy making. And if you look for beginnings, I would say it comes from growing up in a poor country and asking, why on earth are we so poor? What is it that we're doing which keeps us this way? Because I had been to other countries that were much richer and uh, trying to figure out what the difference was. And it certainly wasn't the caliber of the people. And so it seemed to be something else that was making a difference. And to that extent was, in many ways, the motivating force behind getting into economics. Yeah, you know, my wife is from a third world country. And I think that, you know, when you live in certain circumstances, again, this is, you know, me not speaking from experience, but you tend to just accept the circumstances as they are. But once you see the contrast, that's when I think those questions uh, begin. So maybe what are some of the conclusions you, you know, general conclusions you came to that answered, you know, an answer to that question? You know, it's an evolving process. As you know, there's this famous, I don't know who said it, but the questions always remain the same. The answers change. <laughs> but I've seen the answers change to this very question. Why are we so poor? I've seen the answers change over my lifetime. Today, I have a somewhat different set of answers than I would have had, you know, as a 20-year-old. You know, as a young person, you think it's all about, you know, some people having appropriated all the fruits. And that's part of the answer. But it doesn't explain why, you know, they need to keep it for themselves, why there aren't more opportunities for everyone else. And in fact, the easy answer at that point is it's tax the rich. Let's spread it all around and think it'll be fine. And then you realize that the answer is a little more complicated and you have to figure out how, in fact, you create opportunities for everybody. And that's, to my mind, the real question. How, in every country, do we create the possibility for everybody to reach their limits? And that means, first, creating the capabilities in people. We don't sort of, we're not born 
as fully-fledged adults with a PhD degree. We sort of acquire all of this on the way. So how do we create the environment? That's where my new book on the community, how do we create the environment that enables you to get to that place? But then once you have those capabilities, how does the system create incentives for you to use them in the best way possible? How does it make sure that some people don't appropriate most of the fruits and it's more widely spread? How do we keep a level playing field both at the beginning but also along the way? That seems to me the systemic questions we have to answer. And it's not clear to me that, you know, as I grow older, that it's a menu where we pick pieces from the menu. I like this, I like that. To me, it seems more like an equilibrium where a bunch of things happen together and, you know, you have to make compromises. I like this and I like that. I don't like something else. But that's part of the reason or that's how you enjoy the things that you enjoy. You have to give up some other things for that. I want to talk about some of your past and some of the experiences that you've had over the last 10, 12 years, you know, specifically in the positions you've been in positions of authority and influence. But let's dive quickly into this third pillar, the the book you just came out with, because I think they all tie together. So would you mind just explaining first what the pillars are and then, you know, specifically what that third pillar is and why you decided to focus the book around that pillar? Right. I mean, to some extent, I was looking at what I thought was possibly the most successful wealth-creating system we've had in history, which was the post-war liberal market society. Now, that has three words, liberal, market, and actually, I, I would say democracy is probably the third word. Liberal means a state which allows people to flourish, a state which is limited, but does what it's supposed to do, you know, maintain law and order and so on. So that's the liberal part. The market is pretty well understood. That is, to my mind, the second pillar, uh, first being the state. And then there's society, there's community working through democracy to essentially keep the system free and fair and open to everyone. So the third pillar, in my view, is community, but it also implies democracy. It also implies a broader society, which essentially works together. So when you have these... I think you have the conditions for success as a society. And to my mind, and this is where I said you can't pick pieces of this menu. Some people want democracy, but they don't want markets. Some people want government and democracy, but again, they don't want markets. And to my mind, the three hold together. And the first part of the book is trying to tell you why the three fit together. For example, an independent private sector flourishing in a competitive market is important because it acts as a independent source of power. It balances the mighty power of the state. And that balance is important. Otherwise, an overweening state has a tendency of becoming authoritarian. No matter what democratic structures you have, the state which is unbalanced by other parts. I mean, look around the world. When you see a Turkey led by an Erdogan who has very few constraints on his authority, you understand the private sector is not much of a restraint. And understandably so, because the state controls so many levers over the private sector, whether its ability to you know, take away credit, its ability to refuse permissions here and there. You need a more open, flourishing, competitive market uh, where you can have the likes of the New York Times or the Washington Post holding the administration in check, or you can have a Fox News 
holding the previous administration in check. You need these independent private sector powers. I'm not saying it's ideal in the United States. I'm just saying that the private sector is more independent than in other countries. So I think, you know, it's your perspective is interesting, but I also believe it, it may not be the perspective that's held by everyone. I mean, that you have enjoyed, you know, a seat at seeing the world from so many different places. And I look at those that are, you know, in the community and how they're viewing the challenges and the imbalance, because I think most would agree that there's imbalance. But when it comes to the environment, what I understand as the best environment and what you understand, and then what a person that's had you know, maybe no experience leaving central Indiana or central Florida or wherever, you know, just having a very limited perspective on things, they would want the same thing in the end, but yet they're all, I would say, disagreeing on the environment because that's where you come in with, you know, a lot of what AOC and Bernie Sanders and, you know, this notion of communism, which is community. So how has your experience over the years really shaped the perspective uh, and how, you know, strong you feel about a specific type of environment to allow this third pillar to essentially be as influential as the other two pillars? Well, I think it's not just uh, sort of my feelings. I mean, what is clear even in the United States, which is a country which, you know, by many counts doesn't really emphasize the community anymore. Yeah. Even today, you find that the community really matters. Some very powerful work by Raj Shetty, an economist at Stanford, now at Harvard, shows that, you know, which community you grow up in essentially determines what your income will be for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And he does this by looking at kids that move between communities. So you move from a community which is low down on the performance scale to a community which is much higher up in the performance scale. It makes a world of difference in your life chances. Mm-hmm. So community matters, even in the United States, and where some people would argue the community is de-emphasized. But it matters. Why? Because it provides you that start. It gets you that start in terms of your early education, the early schooling you go to, the values you espouse, your identity, your sense of who you are, and your ambitions, right? The ambitions you talked about some places in rural Indiana, the ambitions of kids there today, and I've talked to a bunch of them, are quite different from the ambitions of kids in New York City. And so in that sense, it does matter. And it does set how well you will do going forward in your life. Now, how well you will do income-wise is not the same thing as how well you will do happiness-wise. There's obviously differences between the two. But in general, if we want capitalism to work, people, wherever they are in the country, should have the feeling that it works reasonably well for them, that they're not doomed right from the beginning because of where they started. And that's really our challenge today because the requirements for participating in the capitalist economy have been increasing because of technological change. The skills you require today are far higher than the skills a kid required 100 years ago. You know, a high school education no longer cuts it. So how do you get the skills that you need in the communities you're growing up in? We can't bring everybody to San Francisco and New York City. You have to have much more sort of community-centered development. The problem is that it's a vicious circle. When economic activity leaves a community, the big employer in town closes down. What follows is everything else starts breaking down. Your social relationships start breaking down. Marriages break down. More divorces, more teenage pregnancies, more drug use. Your schools start breaking down. 
And then you have really much lower chance of succeeding in the economy, not just you, your kids. And so it's a vicious circle. How do we break that vicious? We've had many areas like this in the country in the past, but they're increasing. And the question is, how do we reverse this process? And the answer is not lower interest rates. <laughs> Got it. Similarly, it doesn't mean just you know have more fiscal spending. It typically means much more targeted, often bottom-up processes by which we rebuild activity in a community, bring more jobs, new employers, new skills. And that means community involvement. It also means outside support. But we need to be much more clever about this than we've been so far. Maybe go through some of the research that you went through to prove out or to support your thesis, because I, you know, the world is rapidly evolving, and you make you know you make certain claims regarding you know how the things of life are becoming so much easier. Whether it's you know the food we have or transportation or entertainment, you know it's unprecedented as you compare it to a hundred years ago or even fifty years ago. So you know, in individuals, I believe that you know, especially in my experience and individuals, you know, fulfillment and their, you know, experience, their positive experience of life is being involved in making a difference and contributing in, in a sense. So what research or what things did you do to support some of the, you know, methods and direction of strengthening this third pillar? Well, I think the phenomenon I'm pointing to are sort of meta level phenomenon. And so you point to a number of studies which point in the same direction, But the job of somebody writing a book like this is to tie it all together and to say, here's the big picture. And the big picture can be summarized in one big causal factor and one pillar which is weak and therefore cannot respond. The causal factor is technological change, as you just said, is making such a huge impact in our life. And typically, in previous environments of strong technological change, the industrial revolutions, for example, society responded in a big way and said, here are the things that are being you know, touched by technology. Here's how we should respond. For example, in the second industrial revolution, when you had big auto factories, chemical factories being set up, in the United States, you had a massive high school movement, which created a large number of high schools, but also made high school education free so that kids could go and get that education. Now, what is interesting is there was also a time of a lot of immigration. But the immigrants who came into the United States were not well-schooled. They were experienced carpenters. They were experienced plumbers. They had experience, but they didn't have schooling. They were not appropriate for the factories where you needed to know trigonometry to set the angles right in a machine that the kids that had gone through high school knew how to. And that's how America sort of dealt with the second industrial revolution. And many Americans benefited from that. And I would argue that we need to figure out what the appropriate response this time is also. Because what you see is because of technological change, the easy jobs in the middle, the ones that required, you know, even a high school education, that was the technological revolution of the past. And you could actually get decent incomes with that kind of education. Those jobs are disappearing. The manufacturing jobs, which were well-paid, unionized jobs, even the jobs and services, the job of a clerk who used to have to know how accounting, have to know how to add and subtract and so on, used to fill large ledgers. I mean, that job doesn't exist. It's been automated. Yeah. So these jobs in the middle have gone. And you're really left with a choice of either the low-skilled job, you're a security guard somewhere, or the high-skilled job, you're a consultant at McKinsey. 
in between the ladder is just a long ladder, but there's also not many people on that ladder because in between jobs have gone. How do we position people now for those jobs higher up on the ladder? How do we position them with stronger skills? That has become the central question. And the problem is, it all starts with the community. My colleague, Jim Heckman at the University of Chicago, who's a Nobel laureate in economics, says, by the time you're five years old, you're basically done for life in terms of your trajectory, because you've had the early childhood health supports that you need to keep you healthy through life. You've learned some of your habits. Your vocabulary is very different depending on whether you grew up in a professional household or in a household which is really poor where parents don't talk that much. Sometimes there is a strong correlation between income levels and how much you can afford to have time to prepare your kids. And therefore, their life chances of that kid, even by age five, are very different depending on how they grew up. And so in this world where it matters, for you to get those good jobs, you have to have that early preparation. You have to go through a decent high school to be able to manage in college. It's not just enough that colleges open their doors to you. You can spend six years and drop out. One of the biggest problems in U.S. education is the high dropout rate from college. And these kids drop out with huge debt. Part of the problem is they're not well prepared for college in the first place. So how do we get them that preparation? It starts with the community. And that's why I say we need to repair our communities first in order to have a chance in this technological revolution. So what are some of the ideas that you're proposing or the ideas that, you know, may in fact move the needle? Because it is quite the undertaking, right? Because you, you know, one of your areas of expertise is behavioral science and, you know, how human beings behave in large part is habitual or subconscious. And that's where as you're making claims of, you know, where we derive our vocabulary, where do we derive our opinions of certain things? It's not like, you know, you snap a finger and make an argument and suddenly people just, you know, have a different way of viewing the world. So from a community standpoint, making that shift, like what are some of the ways that you see a community, at least the majority of a community, seeing things differently and making the subsequent change? It's a great point you make because, you know, it's something that can't happen from the outside. Somebody clicking their fingers outside and, hey, you community, you got to pull yourself up. Yeah. Uh, what you see again and again is it comes from inside. I mean, you have to maximize the chances of it coming from inside, but you can't force it from the outside. And often it's a few people getting together. In the book, I talk about the Pilsen community in Chicago, which basically was crime-ridden. It was a war zone, literally. The number of deaths per 100,000 was approaching the deaths in Germany during the height of World War II. There were drug wars in every part of the strip there. And essentially, as one of the community activists told me, change came when they found a body outside the church, one of the six churches, and said, this can't go on anymore. The pastor basically asked, who amongst you is willing to stand up? Who amongst you is willing to take the first step? And a bunch of young men came together. And one of them essentially volunteered to take on the task of community revival. And their first task was essentially fixing the crime, bringing down the crime, because with that level of crime, no employer wanted to come in. And they did all sorts of interesting things to arrest the crime. For example, you know, they found that much of the crime was localized around a few bars. So they petitioned the city of Chicago to close down those bars in the neighborhood. And then they found that, you know, one of the problems was people didn't want to call when they saw crime because they feared the criminals would go after them. Why are you ratting on us? So they essentially got a whole bunch of people to call at the same time to 
call the police at the same time and say, look, there's a crime here in progress. And they also persuaded them, get out of your houses. Crime flourishes in dark spaces. Get out, light it up, and come out and crowd the criminals out. It was community effort, which essentially brought down some of the crime. Then they did things like saving the local bank, which was going out of business. But this combination of things essentially helped them essentially become more attractive. And, you know, to some extent, they're paying sort of a modest price for that as now a whole lot of businesses are coming in. A whole lot of people from outside want to live in the Pilsen neighborhood because it seems so much more attractive. So they are getting a little bit of gentrification. I think that's not entirely a bad thing. There are some bad aspects to it in enforcing some old time residents out, but they are going in the right direction, so to speak. Is a perfect example. At the same time, you look at the root cause or event of that happening, and it, you know it was a dead body in front of a church. And so, have you found in just your, you know, an analysis of things that you know typically you have these events that happen, like these earthquakes that shake a person and make them realize, wow, you know, the pain of staying the same is actually worse than the pain of changing and making changes. And you see that as a fundamental dynamic as far as how communities make the changes and adjustments that will, you know, strengthen their core and, their, and that pillar. Well, it's a very good question. I'm not sure that every community needs to have that wake up moment. Some will. And whether it's drug abuse or crime or just the largest employers shutting down, uh, there will be different triggers for them to see that, OK, the things can't go on this way. We have to change. There's a very nice book, Janesville, on how the big employer in town, GM, shut down in a Wisconsin town and how the community came together. Now, she leaves it where the community is trying to put things back together, but is not successful thus far. But, you know, since then, Janesville seems to have made some progress and things are a lot better than they were. In fact, to the extent that the community police is now issuing parking tickets. That's a sign of development that actually you have so much traffic that parking tickets are being issued. But more broadly, I would say the reason I emphasize Pilsen is I want to say that communities that are far down and are plagued by poverty, drug abuse, and crime have found ways to lift themselves. I see this every day in, in poor India. There are villages that decide, okay, we're not going to depend on you know the elusive government coming in and digging irrigation tanks and irrigation ditches for us, we're going to do it. It's that old frontier mentality in the U.S., right, that we're going to do it because there's nobody else who's going to do it for us. Now, that is a mentality, but I think in a developed country, there's so many sources of help also. I've been talking, for example, to the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, where they have an entire department which is trying to energize some of these community efforts bringing communities together, getting them to learn from each other. And there are, of course, many sources. There's, there's a lot of wealth in this country. And that wealth is sometimes in private philanthropic ways, for example, the Kaiser Foundation in Tulsa, or in public ways. We have now something called the Opportunity Zone set up by this administration, which essentially offers tax benefits if you invest in communities that are falling behind. So there is help available. But I think it's very hard for Washington or for, you know, some faraway state capital to understand what needs to be done in the community. So the planning on what needs to be done has to become much more internal. Who would know that the significant problem in Pilsen was crime? That once you dealt with the crime, other magic would happen. 
So it's trying to figure out what are the two or three key impediments that if I fix, it will set it back on a virtuous cycle and reverse the vicious cycle. That locals know far better. There's so many examples, some of which I cite in the book, but elsewhere of people thinking, okay, what can we do that's different? What can we do to get the community engaged? And you know, there will be mistakes, there will be failures, but it's a way out. And it's a way out, which I think, you know, is easier in a developed country where really the, the key is attaching yourself back to the national economy. These are fascinating points. You know, it's something I think about a lot. I know that, you know, there are many others that are asking similar questions as to, you know, how is this wealth gap, you know, going to end up? Because, you know, it's moving, but is it moving in the right direction? And that's where you have the primary narratives, I think, that exist are, you know, that federal government is really the power of influence that should be fixing this problem. And, you know, and it continues to, to build. I think there's a lot of movement right now, especially with, you know, the liberal side of things, the Democratic, you know, a large part of the Democratic Party, where, you know, the solution isn't necessarily going back to communities. The solution is, you know, using central powers to influence change through, you know, universal basic income or redistribution of wealth. And I look at how significant the claims you're making And, you know, you're really trying to solve symptoms with those central influenced, you know, initiatives instead of the actual root of the issue, because the world is evolving. Like, I mean, my, you were mentioning five-year-olds. I have a five-year-old that turned five today. And just to see what the world has done in the last five years is incredible. And you look at, you know, the central powers and being able to it's just not reasonable for them to adapt to the rate of change that's occurring because they're so far away. And by the time, you know, a decision needs to be made, it's too late. So I look at, you know, the significance of, you know, your perspective and what you're making claims on as something that would move the needle. And I think local, you know, that was the intention of the United States in the beginning, wasn't it? That the reason for the 10th Amendment was to keep, you know, powers more local than federal. But anyway, I mean, there's so many other questions I have as a follow-up to this, but I'd love to just you know, see where, how you've looked at the state of, you know, the United States, the state of the world when it comes to the immense amount of government power that exists and their kind of adoption of this role to solve problems and to make everything right. You mentioned that the Federal Reserve or the bank, Federal Reserve Bank in Philadelphia, but do you see other signs of just how this central influence is shrinking? Or do you see that there's still issues to be resolved there? Well, look, I don't want to argue, I mean, to your earlier point, that there is no role for the central government. But it seems to me that for 45, 50, well, I, I think since Gerald Ford, every central, every president has been the education president. And how are we doing on education? Not very well. So we need to figure out alternative approaches. And I would agree very much with your thinking that central is difficult because the problem that each place faces is so different. And so some one-size-fits-all policy devised in Washington is not going to work. As support, central is fine. As prime mover, it's probably not what the doctor ordered for the country. And I think this chimes very well with the resilience, the empowerment of people, which has always been true in the United States. And I worry that in these communities, that empowerment is fading, that sense of empowerment. And that also leads to a different kind of problem, which is that you look to the nation for your identity and for your answers rather than for the people around you. 
And my worry, and that's true in a number of countries now, it's true in, in India also, that when you start looking for the nation as a resolution and you become more nationalist in spirit. Now, nationalism is not a bad thing, but nationalism, which looks for the enemy as the reason for your problems becomes problematic because it's very easy to point fingers outside, point fingers at minorities within the country. But that's really no solution because it's not them who are holding you back. It's you have to change. And so my part of the reason why I emphasize a back to the, the root sort of approach is it seems to me we need to rediscover identity back in our communities. Now, when I say this to many cosmopolitan people who dwell in big cities, they laugh. They say, we left those communities long back. But, you know, in the United Kingdom, 80% of people still identify with their village or their town as their community. I mean, they're not the rootless people that sometimes we see in, in cities. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing to be a citizen of everywhere, but there are many people who are a citizen of somewhere. And it seems to me that they need to find ways to address their problems and we need to think about how that can best be done. So some combination, this is why I say balance. It's not all the central government, it's not all the community, not all the markets, some balance between the three, which is going to help us get out of our problems. The fact that this is not just a United States problem, it's a problem in France. It's a problem in Germany. It's a problem in China and it's a problem in India. Suggests that, you know, we need a model for the world of the future. And that's, in a sense, what I'm trying to propose. At some level, you know, some people are dissatisfied. Where's the big tax where is the big government program? These are all, you know, milk toast. It's too light to, but there is a big idea here, which is let us focus on decentralized government and governance as the way forward, rather than put yet more burden on a centralized government in a fractured society. I love how you, you know, describe the environment or the community in which certain things take place. I think, you know, going to the original proper role of government was to, you know, essentially protect this environment. And, you know, obviously the Scottish Enlightenment had so much influence on the founding fathers to develop the constitution and develop really the environment in which commerce was to take place. And we've gone away from that. And it's understandable. At the same time, there's always a price to pay. And I think we're paying it right now just because of how people believe things should be. And, you know, I look at the future and it's incredible what human beings have been able to create. The potential in one mind is can change the world and it can change a community. And that's where, you know, an environment where you essentially have handouts or, you know, have this theory that you should be taken care of. I don't know if it ever leads to a person really discovering happiness or fulfillment, which I think is kind of the general desire of everyone to an extent. And that's where it's like you look at the examples that you cited and whether it's uh, Chicago or other places where people actually face adversity and figure out how to make adjustments and thrive because of that. It's so inspiring. It, but it comes down to really, I would say, you know, the notion of forest and trees, right? You know, a forest is an abstract. Forest doesn't exist, right? A community is also kind of an abstract. It's a group of people, right? And I think the individual and the protection of their rights is really due to what the individual can create in the right environment if that's what, you know, the overall consensus is. And so that's where, I don't know, I look at your experience and you obviously had a front row seat 
at the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, and you saw what happens and how decisions at high levels can impact the entire world, which it did, but also being a part of a higher education program at University of Chicago. And you coming to these conclusions isn't just you waking up in the morning and saying, hey, I'm going to write a book about this third pillar. Right. That's why I find it fascinating just how much you've experienced of where things succeed and where things fail. And I'm a fan and I appreciate all the work that you've done. Maybe one last, a couple last questions. Where do you propose like these, your theories, like where have you tried to put them in front of, whether it's local bodies or federal bodies? I mean, what are you trying to achieve with this book other than getting the ideas out there? Do you have some sort of an initiative that you're trying to push forward? I'm starting that process and it starts first by publicizing the ideas, but then people start calling you and say, oh, come talk to us. We're doing this stuff. And I'm really learning more right now because there's so many different variety, uh, different ways that communities are coping. So I got a call in the morning from a group at the World Bank, which is dealing with coal dependent communities across the world and how they're dealing with the fact that coal is now largely sort of on its way out and how do they recover and what kinds of different ways are different groups across the world doing it. And obviously this is a very powerful sort of way if they figure out what sort of best practices are of trying to spread the word across the world. Here's how they have coped in Austria. Here's how they coped in Australia. And therefore let's figure out whether you can do some of these things. I think that's uh, part of what I want to do is figure out how you can emphasize more of the success, make it happen more widely. Now, I do want to say that part of this comes from my experience in development. I said I grew up thinking, why are we poor? And as I looked at development and I studied it, one of the most interesting findings in development is the very, very low explanatory power of aid flows from outside to how a country develops. So you would think a lot of money coming into the country from countries that are giving money from across the world should make this country grow very fast. It doesn't. Oh, yeah, Venezuela. <laughs> well, for a variety of reasons, it has very low explanatory power. And so what really happens is when a country like South Korea says, we're going to make a change. And the development part for every country is different because each country has a different set of resources, different set of capabilities, different set of impediments. But it's when they figure out that they need to make a change, that is when the rest of the world can be helpful by buying their goods, by trading with them, and so on. But that sort of idea has percolated into this book, that when you look at successful communities, again, we don't know what the recipe is, because the recipe is something they figure out, because they're close to the problem. But you do know that it often has to come from inside. Well, thank you for sharing 45 minutes. I know a little over time. I'm going to do my best. We're going to get the word out to our circle of influence. And, you know, I wish you the best. It's something that, you know, it's a growing challenge. And, you know, I think humanity, it's just fascinating to observe sometimes where we're at. We've become essentially kind of a global community just because of the ease of communication. And, you know, sometimes ideas, ideas are where most of the power comes from. And getting an idea in a person's head and then getting it to get out of their head if it's the wrong idea or unprincipled idea, that's a big challenge. I look at just intellectuals such as yourself and other just powers of influence, not necessarily from like a government central standpoint, but just whether it's uh, media or authors that are rising to the challenge 
I was at a financial conference a couple months ago up in Whistler, Canada, and Ray Dalio, right, obviously, you know, with Bridgewater and a just massive hedge fund, but the majority of his thoughts were directed toward taking some of his understanding of capitalism and free markets and so forth and being able to institute that in central Connecticut to improve the poverty and crime situation there. It's one of those things where I think that problems are getting to the point where they're boiling over. And I think people like yourself are going to make a difference, are making and going to make a difference. Thank you very much. And I do hope to stay engaged and well, hope we get more people to start thinking about these issues. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you again, Dr. Rajanas. It's wonderful having you on and I wish you all the best. Thank you. And thanks for taking the time. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh.